0: One of my spiritual teachers said to me nothing nothing of value will go in a linear transmission doesn't simply go from here to here like message sent message received message understood world corrected all's well bye bye that the communication process itself is alchemy. So I invite you to join me in that alchemy. And some of you who have heard me before, always I give a sort of truth in lending statement to begin with. I'm confusing. Don't worry about it. (laughs) Your condition generally in the West to, in your understanding of rhetoric to go from the general to the specific, from the specific to the general. What's the point he's making? <laughs> Let's get to the point, James. I need at least 10 points, you know. <laughs> well, I'm a, I'm a Celt, right? And the Celts have a different rhetorical style. They say, okay, I'm going to make a point, but you know, on the way to the point. <laughs> I'm going to take another place, another journey because, and it's actually like the Arabic culture. If you can imagine, American politicians pointed, speaking in the communication with Arabic politicians. You have this digression. You get to the place, but you know, what we really want to check out is, are you real? Who are you? Who's your grandmother? You know, mine was Granny Breen. I'm going to tell you about Granny Breen. And so it's a zigzag because the journey is as important as the point, right? And then in the Asiatic tradition, there's the great circle. Spring, summer, winter, fall, spring. You have to return. You have to get back to the once and future place you came from. So all that and more, I'm going to make a point now. (laughs) The paradox is now fully established that the utmost abstractions are the true weapons to control our thought. Want to hear that one again? That was Alfred North Whitehead. I get a point. The paradox is now fully established that the utmost abstractions are the true weapons to control our thought. We have lived, we have created a world of abstractions, and so let's begin in what I call the cosmic sensorium. Let's return, you know, Bruno Schulz says, if you're going to To get into a deep inquiry, what you have to do is tear up the floorboards of the soul and feel the starry firmament. Even in Plato's time, he said, something is wrong. People are saying that the universe is dead rocks and gases. Wow. You know, Granny Breen, who lived off the grid before off the grid was off the grid. (laughs) she was so advanced before her time <laughs> she would cook you know over the hearth you know over the she'd have her pots over the, the 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 fireplace that's where she cooked her breads and i was a good catholic boy who came from you know near dublin and so of course you know you'd begin a meal and you'd say in the name of the father and the holy spirit not really our father Bless us, O Lord, and these thy gifts, you know, that grace. She said, oh, she said, stop that. I need all the grace for me cooking. I put all the grace in me cooking. Don't you be wasting that grace now. (laughs) And you know what she said? This woman who was a little severe, actually, not sentimental, not, you know, she wore that black, she had that toughness of spirit. She said, you need roots. And you need stars. How often do you go out and experience the starry firmament? You are beings who've, who resonate at the frequency of distant stars. Your blood is the red of Mars. Your planet, planet Earth, has a frequency. They call it the Schumann resonance. It's about 7.8 Earths. It's exactly the resonance that you get into when you start to listen deeply. So you here you are, isn't that a beautiful notion? That when you start to resonant, resonate in the constant sense of deep listening, you're resonating at the frequency of your own planet. In order to break the cruddy machine that has attached itself to your soul and your psyche and every membrane of subtle intuition, you have to experience some sense of a cosmic reality. And the cosmic story is so exquisite these days. It is a highly attuned universe. It is a deeply resonant universe. You know. I talk a little bit about the Mayan calendar and the time we live in. I'm not going to get into it today, but the Mayans had this word ku. And, and, and ku is creator, creative energy. Hunab ku is the creator. And ul is the frequency of vibration. So they refer to the calendars, the kul kan. Ku, creator. Ul, vibration. That's the calendar, feeling the vibration and the frequency of the resonance of the creator. There's nothing else. The rest of it is bullshit. <laughs> Go out. You know, Emerson says, has this beautiful, I'm going to not get him exactly right, but you know, he's there, and he's saying, I listened to the learned astronomer as he unfolded the charts and spoke of the heavens, and I, I walked outside, and I looked up at the stars. Look up at the stars and remember, remember who you are. This will help you, the first part of our medicine today. This will help you remember that this little story we're trapped in this little crazed voice that goes on on our TV sets and so on is not the reality of realities. You know, Neil Douglas Klotz, when he translates the Aramaic Jesus, oh my God, it's so wonderful. Now translated to the Greek, this is our Father who art in heaven hallowed be thy name. Through Klotz's maybe rich and wild (laughs) interpretation of those words in the original Aramaic. It is, oh, mother, father of the cosmos. And the Shem, the the word we call heaven, the the Aramaic word is bashem maya. Shem, the root, the central part of that is Shem. Shem is that frequency, he says, of sound and light. You know that, that, uh, Astrophysicists meeting last year in Colorado said, if you were to stand inside the corona of the sun, you know, not something you regularly do on a Saturday morning, but since we're standing in the fire of change, we're going to get inside the corona. And you know what they said, these astrophysicists? They said, it would be like hearing a million church bells ringing. Shem cool, that sense of the frequency, the resonance of light and sound, that sense of frequency, shem. Neth kade The translation is, bring your resonance into me. Let me resonate, neth kade your shem into me. There's the original sense of cosmic reality. Bring that frequency of the whole story, of the entire abundant creativity. We're now talking about the fact that the Big Bang was a Hollywood story. That, that you know, it was just the beginning of, of another universe. Even Sir Roger Penrose, there in good old England, says, you know, it, it does appear that uh, we are living through an eon in this universe, but that there are eons of universes before us. That helps pull us out, doesn't it, of the little story. That helps give us a sense of where we are in time. It's a big, it's a glorious story. After the cosmic sensorium, we have our work as the witness. Who is the witness? I ask you, where and how are you the witness of now what is happening on this planet? It is so critical to understand this notion of the witness. You know, the witness is different than the observer. Think of the observer in the words of Francis Bacon who says, let us take nature and put her on the rack and torture her until she leaves her secrets, until she gives us her secrets. We've been doing that, haven't we? We've been listening to Bacon. We've been torturing nature. We've been putting her on the rack since 1970, since the first Earth Day on planet Earth. We have lost one third of the species of this planet. We've been torturing nature because we've abstracted ourselves, back to that whitehead concept. Let's live in the abstraction of ourselves. Whoa, whoa, there's nature and, and, and there's us, right? Somehow we're different. Really, we're about to find out. <laughs> the observer, the onlooker. Where are you, when are you the observer, the onlooker, all the way down to the crazed psychobabbler? <laughs> Let's talk about how terrible it is. You know, the world is in a crisis. Oh my god, it's so bad. Let's go on. We could spend years talking about it, right? That's not witnessing. Let me tell you a story of witnessing. I'm at the door in Washington DC with two people, Marie Deans and Arne Shorn Pond. We have done a Human Rights Day celebration and they have both told their stories and transfigured the audience with their words. We're at the door of this hotel in Washington and Arndt says to Marie, why me? Why me? Why did I survive? Let me tell you their story, Marie Dean's first. Her mother was brutally murdered. I don't want to go into the details, brutally murdered. And Marie, three days later said, please, no murder in the name of this murder. No killing to prove that killing is wrong. Don't do it in my name. And so she becomes an advocate for people on death row. She sits with men who are about to be executed as the witness. In one of those moments, a man who's about to be executed looks at her and says, Marie, where is God? Where is God now? That's a question, isn't it? on the chair about to be executed. Where is God now? And Marie Deans looks at him and makes a gesture from his heart to her heart, from her heart to his heart. That's where God is. He breathes back and he's executed. Arnshorn Pond is just over nine years old in the Cambodian genocide. He's picked up with about 10 children by the Khmer Rouge, and they're taken to a temple, and their heads are smashed against the wall, each one of them just snuffed out against the temple wall of all places. And when it comes to arm, they stop, because he has a flute he's holding tightly in his hand. And they say, play the flute, boy. And Shorn Pond plays the flute. And they say, wow, listen to that music. What music that is. You, could, you can live, because you play music. And so for several years, he was the flute player at genocide. They took him everywhere. He talks about witnessing disemboweled people still alive where, where the liver is being pulled up. I'm sorry to upset some of you. A little boy seeing these things, and they say to him, play. And one day they say, hey, try this. And they put a machine gun in his hand. And he starts to spray the machine gun. And he sees this woman coming towards him. And literally the blood is spouting from her body. I'm sorry to upset you. And he sees mother. He sees every woman, every mother in this woman whose whose blood is pouring forth out of her. He drops the machine gun, he runs. He runs through the killing fields. He gets into Thailand. He is delivered to the West. Here we are at the door in Washington. Now you understand why Arne Shorn says, why me? Why did I get out? And Marie Dean says to him, because Arne, you and I are sacred witnesses. You are a witness. To be a witness is not to be abstracted in any way from that which is seen, which that, that which is looked upon. It is, as the physicists talk about in their strange language, entangled, interconnected, interfused, It is, in fact, a frequency of consciousness. Do you hear me on this? It is not a part of your brain that's wandering around looking for things. It's not the busy mind. It's not saying, oh, what can I get involved in? It's actually a frequency of consciousness that has super saturated solution in it of consciousness that is drenched with compassion that is so embracing of what it sees, that the witness itself can transform. It is a knowledge process given to us in higher consciousness that what we truly witness in that open space of our consciousness, we can help resolve because we say we are not separated from it. And when we talk about sacred activism, we must be witnesses. We cannot be chatters, onlookers, commentators. We can't abstract ourselves and say, well, I'm against this. It's all over there. And as if it's not inside of you. You know, we're the environmentalists who fly around in our planes. We're the human rights people who pay our taxes for for bombs to be sent. We are implicated. And if we can be implicated without that judgmentalism that Sequoia talks about, but still there, still wholly interconnected, we can be part of the transformation. I ask you again, where and how are you witnessing? And I ask you one more question that I'm sort of trying to ponder these days because I think it's a golden question. If you are witnessing, how are you connecting with the unity of the witness? Imagine now the power that we've talked about of the witness and then we're saying it's a level of consciousness, it's an octave of consciousness that we can reach together so we can witness together, we can be in that state together. Now imagine the power of the unity of the witness arising in this time to say, we are in knowledge going to transform this because now we know We know the war. We know that story. We know it in a way that we can transform it. And that leads me precisely then to this arena of vision and imagination. And just as witnessing isn't that clack, 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 of the machine, vision and imagination are real. We're not talking about fantasy. You know, fantasy, just to clarify it, is is sort of like the little hamster wheel. It says, hmm, I want to take a little spin on that. Hmm, I think I'll do the spin again. Hmm, that's great. I'll spin some more. You know, while this guy is talking to me, I have my little back room, and I go, "Oh, I want to do a little of that." It's repetitive. It's not creative. It's not fecund. It's not alive, even. It's dead stuff just repeating. Einstein, what a you know, a brilliant mind, he says, "Knowledge is limited. Einstein, <laughs> knowledge is limited. What encircles our planet is imagination. Please be with me. Imagination as a substance. Imagination, as we heard, Andrew, last night, as a fire. You know, when they talked in the gospel of the tongues, of the flames of fire entering the apostles, the imaginative force, the power of, un, of liberated imagination entering as flames into the hearts and souls. You have to feel imagination as a substance in your body. It's something that quickens, that makes you more alive, that you feel. Every, every atom of your being is being engaged. I imagine that the future of schools and education is going to be transformed. Come with me into the classroom of the future, of the, of the once and, and, and former future, whatever that expression is. What is that expression? The once and future, right. Teacher, I'm teacher today. Okay, class. We need to set the field today before we can begin our work. Can, we, can you participate with me, please? Now, how do we set the field together? Of course, love. We have, to, we have to create the energy of love. So please, class, would you all start to breathe into your hearts now? Please? I can see some of you at the back there are not doing this practice. Please. <laughs> breathe into your heart, please. And place in your heart one person you love. You. I'm asking you to breathe into your heart, please. Place there one person you love. I would remind you, Johnny at the back, since you're interested in science, that when we do this, we change the electromagnetic flow of the body. We change the biochemistry of the body. We create the lovers, the pleasure seekers, the hormones of love. When we place one person in our heart, I can feel it now, can you feel it? It's like I said, when you attune, when you get into that sensorial state, you can start to feel it again. You can feel again the presence of love and its power to create a field of meaning. That is where the class begins. Wow! Can you imagine with me? Don't no, Take it out into the abstract, please. Imagine with those tongues of flame with me. Now there's still a few remnants from a former era over there. Susie and Peter, I know you're having fun with each other, but could you come over here, please? I want you to, to put your fingers in this biofeedback and you'll see that it's going to give you an image of your heart space. And when your heart space is really coherent you can come back into the love field of the classroom. How about that? And you'll be bringing more of that coherent heart energy back into the classroom. Now, some of you are saying, my God, where is the punishment gone? Where's detention gone? You know, I had a, a, a fight. My, one of my kids went to Marine Catholic School. See the zigzag coming here? He didn't come to school one day with his proper clothes for the service. For the, he was supposed to do that. He called me, panicked, said, "Dad, you know I'm supposed to have the jacket and tie for, for 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 mass today." I said, "Well, I'm halfway to Berkeley, Brendan. For God's sake!" So I, you know, drove back, got the gear, r- rushed to the school, got in there, and. Um, I thought we'd done well. It was about ten minutes before the service. He could change. He could go into the church with this regalia. About a week later, he was sort of sneaky about it, but something gave me a clue. I said, "Weren't you late today or something?" He said, "Yeah, I, I had detention." I said, "What did you get detention for?" He said, "I didn't arrive in school in the suit." I said, "Oh, for God's sake. I called the dean. I said, "Dean, do you know what our family did to get our son into the church, which is the whole idea that it's sacred ground and he's going in looking good?" He said, "Well, you know, he had to get a detention because that's the rule." I said, "It's the rule, you know, even if you know somebody makes a, a, an effort like this?" He said, "It's the rule." I said, "Okay, dean." I said, we don't need you, then, do we? If the, if the rule, you know, regulates the, the school, you're not needed to interpret the rule. The rule is always there. There was a deathly silence on the phone. <laughs> and we both put the phones down. Or maybe I did first, I don't know. <laughs> and I... Uh, I said to Brendan afterwards, I said, oh God, I hope I haven't made it worse for you. Um, but where has it gone in that vision, in that imagination? That's a little thing, detention, isn't it? Look, imagine with me now the prisons. Walk into the prison of the future with me. Houses of healing. Places that understand modern science. How the amygdala becomes traumatized if you're going to be raped, if you're going to have dreadful things done to you that are done in prisons. That that there is a transformation. How can we help you? How can we restore the relationship between you and the other? You know, this, this restorative justice is a model for the future. There's a story in Native American circles where, the, where there is sometimes used the restorative justice model. And it's a story that was told to me by a Native American lawyer in New Mexico where I now live. She said, you know, there's this case of a grandmother and two adolescent kids came in to her house and smashed it up. They didn't realize that she was there and that in fear she had hidden behind the curtain. And as they broke up her house, she was there in hiding. And as they left, she was able to see who was responsible. So when they convened the tribal court, grandmother, the whole circle of the community is there, the neighbors, the uncles, the aunts, The whole circle of the community. And she doesn't start with the boys. She starts over here and she says, Uncle, were you looking out for these boys? Were you taking them on fishing trips? Did you have a good and strong relationship with them? All the way around the circle. Neighbor, were you looking out for what was going on in the neighborhood? The story of the involvement of the whole community, that is something that must change, that we are all implicated. When we see the crime, do, is, is it abstracted again from us? Well, that's over there, and you know we're the good people. How do we create these environments? And finally, you know, grandmother comes to the, the two young men and she says, "Well, what did I ever do to hurt you? Did I did I offend you somewhere? Did I did I do something wrong? By this one, these kind of tough kids are pushing back a tear or two. She says, okay, well, here's what you have to do. You're going to have eight weekends at my house. And you know, I've I've really always wanted a little extra cabinet over at the side. So you're going to add that in too. Restore. So here we are in Boise, and some of you may know that there's Sustainable Futures that works with women on a prison release program, and that some of the benefits from this conference are coming to help them. Barbara Marx Hubbard and I met with the women yesterday. Wow! If you want to have a spiritual experience, see what the future is like when a prison system would start to incorporate what is being done through this how to learn basic communication skills, self-love, respect, integrity, to be seen as a whole person. The women, several of the women said yesterday, the biggest difference is being seen and recognized and appreciated as a full human being, not as something that is potentially going to explode, that you have to control, that you have to keep back. Imagine with me not as an abstraction, but as a reality. The transformation of education, of healthcare, of prison systems, the return to community, to sustainable community. You know, if you've got investments in agribusiness, I suggest you change them because they're running out of topsoil. They're running out of ways to pollute the earth. They're getting less return. Go, you've heard of the slow food movement. Now your investment of the future is in the slow money investment process, slow money. Slow it down. Invest in that farmer's market. Invest in that community enterprise. Invest in the values of your communal endeavors. You will see the return because it's aligned with the reality that's trying to emerge. We talk about these times as glocal. You heard that expression, glocal. We're going glocal. <laughs> Global and local. We must return to the resacralization of the local community. How often do you feed from the fire of vision and imagination? I ask you. The central question for sacred activists, let that imaginative reality descend and live it, embody it, incarnate it. So we've talked about the cosmic sensorium, about the witness, about the vision and imagination. The next arena is dialogue. As one theologian recently put it, for this planet, it is dialogue or death. How often do you listen with your whole being to the whole being of the other person? I'll give you a 20 seconds to meditate on that. How often do you listen with your whole being to the whole being of the other? I mean, science is getting good. If we can bring science into this level of the party, as as opposed to some sort of, you know, game for pharmaceutical weapons industries and so on, we really have something that's cooking. Because science will tell you, you know, when you start listening, the most fruitful stuff goes on. We talked about the primary resonances of the planet itself and how we, when we're listening, or at the same frequency, when you are listening to the other with that whole body listening, you start to create a waveform that, if they are agitated, brings them into greater relief. In an experiment in research that was done between Israelis and Palestinians, You know, we talked about in prison, the amygdala. The amygdala is like the alarm, right? It says, ah, danger, danger. People are coming out of prison with post-traumatic stress, with an amygdala that won't shut off. That's, That's the reverse of what should be happening, right? But obviously in a dialogue where there's conflict, you're going to have adrenaline going, cortisol running through the system, heart not in a coherent state, amygdala charged, and listening starts to bring the amygdala of the other into some level of repose. The circuitry of listening is so powerful. How deep are you listening? You know, this image I have, I don't know what the language system to use it, is that there is this crud that we are encased in it's a mechanistic crud. It's a distraction. It's the matrix. You know, we're inside a reality that is not a real reality. The basis of the matrix was the inspiration was a French philosopher, Baudrillard, who said, we, we we, in modern times, we live in a simulacrum. A simulacrum is exactly that quote from Whitehead. It's an abstraction. It's, you know, when you have a symbol, the symbol refers to something in reality, right? What happens if you take away the reality and you just keep the symbol? Ooh, frightening, right? You're living in a world in which there are all these symbols, but the reality has been stolen. Health. (laughs) Go buy it. You see? How do we wake up from that level of distraction and crud. We attune ourselves to those forces and vibrations of evolution moving and moving. And we know, we heard it in Andrew and in Sequoia. You're going to hear it beautifully, exquisitely from Barbara. Evolution is about her business. This is not an end story where all is gone. This is a birth, this is a becoming, attuned to this movement and you will begin to experience that imaginative engagement with the possibilities of our own becoming, with that miraculous breakthrough, that awakening in time, that washing off of that mechanistic sludge that is all around us, that pharmacopoeia. Do you see on the TV that little butterfly that comes for you? Come with me, Lunesta, It will help you sleep well. I make millions and billions of dollars off of you. All you have to do is buy some more tranquilizing drugs. How often do you create a space for dialogue? I have to ask myself this again and again because we live in this sort of ping-pong. You know, we create one sense of reality, of engagement with the, the, the other, and then we, we otherize the other, right? We create it over there, and you have to keep going back, keep going back over there to the place that, where you otherize. Ask yourself, who am I in dialogue with? How am I engaging the other? Is there another? I am you. You are me. They are history. That in this transformation of consciousness, the lesser being, there is no lesser being on the face of the earth, is there? In nature, in the animal world, in the human world, no one is lesser, inferior. No one has the wrong color skin. No one has the wrong color eyes. No one belongs to the wrong club. Whatever it is, that is the transformation of otherness. I see you. If I listen to you with my whole being, if I engage with dialogue, what do I see? I see the calling forth of your essence. I engage with your essence, essence to essence. No other there. Essence to essence. Can you do that, please? Can you find places to really dialogue where it's hard and difficult? I do that as a practice. I'm working with 40 Israeli and Palestinian psychiatrists and psychologists. By the way, there's nothing more difficult (laughs) Not the Israeli Palestinian thing, that's difficult, but the psychiatrists and the psychologists, they always have another angle. (laughs) They have another angle on the problem. It's like, wow. Stop the ranting. You know, I could say that to myself too, right? Stop the finger pointing. Our activism that we're talking about must be the engendering of solutions, not the pointing out of problems. If we don't know the problem now, you know, whether whatever the universe has for retro you know, work, you'll be sent there. <laughs> yeah. I feel there's more in there, but I, I don't know how to address it because we're conditioned. We live in a conditioned mind, you know, Krishnamurti, well, Immanuel Kant, I'm getting a point here, Emmanuel Kant says, dare to know. And Krishnamurti says, liberation is freedom from the known. So somehow we have to dare to know the unknown as Sequoia in his invocation in his prayer this morning said, you know, Aluna, we talked about, well maybe it was last night, Aluna in the Kogi language is the great mystery. You know even in modern physics there is a sense that the universe is pulsed, that it's here and it's not here, that there is always a space between this definite reality and the totally indefinite reality, between the the realization and the pure potentiality, between the latent forces that could be, that might be, and what is now. There's always an isthmus, a breathing space, something that says, something new could come in here, something could change the story, one attitude, one glance, one dialogic gesture might, in fact, open, come through that space in the universe. So the universe breathes. If you meet someone who has hypercoherence, you'll see that there's no space in their truth for your truth. You need a space. The universe is built around those spaces, those sort of suggestive spaces, those ambiguous spaces. Those subtle spaces where my truth and your truth can dance, can play. If you have hyper coherence of the truth, I call it rigor mortis of the truth. Every dot lines up. I can prove to you everything about everything you ever needed to know. I used to get emails at the Institute of Noetic Sciences with these equations, and then a little, you know, as you can see, I've proved the nature of the universe. Okay. Good. Let there be, isn't that Kahil Gebran? Let there be spaces in your truth for my truth. That's how dialogue begins. Paradox, ambiguity, subtlety is not wimpy. It's not weakness. You're not weak if you're ambiguous. If you live in the place of I don't know, you're achieving what the mystics long for. I don't know. Oh, good. We've got one who can put something in. As one of my spiritual teachers said, James, I want you to stop praying for a while. I said, what? He said, stop praying. You're making yourself a saint. He said, how can you be written on if the page is full? Be a blank page so that you may be written on. Be a blank page. Have an emptiness, a space for the other to come in so that you too can have an evangelical experience. I mean this. I love that evangelical sense of I am willing to be transformed by the moment, by the evidence of the moment, by a miraculous intervention. That's the high stance to be in. You don't need to, to attach fundamental stuff to it. But that sense that you can be open, and that you have a space for evolution to say, you know what? I have the next best idea. I have the next best version. And in dialogue, finally, on that question of dialogue, how did you get here? You know, I hear so much condemnation of others of the past, how wrong they were, and if only they had done this, and if only you know, they had made those choices, they shouldn't have done that, and how did you get here? You got here because they were the way they were, right? You are the product of all of that evolutionary effort. You are the sum total, as Sequoia says, of actually everything in the universe from the beginning of creation. You are the sum of that learning process. So if you need to let the other go hospice it, hospice work is not about condemnation, it's about that essence work. I see your essence. You are, you are moving into another domain. So dialogue is vital and it needs spaces. I ask you again, how often do you listen with your whole being to the whole being of another? How are we doing on time here? We're good. We have a little bit more time. Consciousness. There's so much about the nature of consciousness that we need more time to unpack that, but in some central way we understand that we're moving in consciousness from more duality to less duality. From the duality of right versus wrong, good versus bad, to something more sophisticated, something more nuanced, something more subtle. I actually believe, as I wrote in an article recently in Cosmos Journal, that the so-called average person is getting this sense of inclusion at greater and greater levels. How do you look at stress? It's one of the, I think, very, very fundamental questions to look at in relationship to consciousness, because everybody says, well, stress, you've got to get rid of it, right? Stress. Ouch. How do I relax? How do I take my yoga class? How do I get out of the stressful world? That's a duality. That's saying there's stress and there's relaxation. That's, I ask you, how do you go into the stress and transform the negative stress? Look at any great prophet and teacher of this planet. Look at Mahatma Gandhi, Martin Luther King. They, They embraced the stress this primary energy in the universe that is your teacher. And if you do this to it, what, who's doing that? That's the ego saying, surely there's a shortcut. Surely there's an easier way. Surely you don't have to spend all that. So you don't have to give your heart to that, right? That's the ego. It's, it's stress avoidant. The ego is very stress avoidant. What we're talking about in, in, in beginning to reach this non-dual state is to say, I embrace the force that's coming towards me as my teacher. Life hits us all with a two-by-four. I totally agree with Andrew last night when he referred to the quick, I forget the language you used, but the quick and easy recipe to spiritual success and getting your swimming pools and whatever it is, you know. that that life has its tragedy for us all. It has its, its boulders it places in our path. This is reality. How do we meet those boulders not as our enemies, not as the things that defeat us, not that push us eternally into victim consciousness where we stay wounded, but that out of the wound we transform, we use that energy It's a kind of Aikido of life that you take that energy of stress and use it as the creative basis for moving forward. And I affirm the deep pain, the deep hurt, the deep tragedy that I have witnessed on the planet. But that is not the place that should or can or needs to remain stuck So how do we use stress as our teacher so that we finally come closer to the non-dual state? And I think there are many levels of non-duality in consciousness. But the beginning of that state that says, the very thing that wounded me was my teacher, was the beginning of my healing. The thing that I thought was negative was not so negative when viewed from this higher state of consciousness, this more inclusive state that said, wow, how did you get here? How did you get to have such a radiant heart? How did you get to have such a healthy family? Because you were able to go through that wounding to a place of healing. And I will end, and then we'll take some questions. I think that's how it's going to go. When I was with the Seva Foundation, Seva is a Sanskrit word for service. You know, in Amnesty International, I worked for 10 years in Amnesty International, and I had a cartoon on my desk. And the cartoon was of the two children in the woods. You know that uh, is that Hans Christian Andersen story? the Wicked Witch and the two children who are... and they're looking out of the window and the... and the... And the witch is opening the door, you know, with her long nose and, and there's a lady a little bit like Granny Breen, if you can imagine, with her black top and her black, you know, tight black and her umbrella and her handbag of course. And the Wicked Witch says, Oh it's Amnesty International. <laughs> Amnesty International is that sort of upright moral conscience, you know, who's, who's being kidnapped here and who's And I went from that reality to the Saver Foundation, which was founded by Ram Das, who did, you know, drugs at Harvard and became enlightened and Wavy Gravy, who was the MC at Woodstock who came to the board meetings uh, walking a fish. Uh, you know, it was a, a bizarre California from Washington, D.C. You get the picture. Uh, well, and, uh, but the work of the Saver Foundation was, a lot of it was around blindness prevention in Tibet, Nepal, and India. And when I was in Nepal, I met a man who was about 70. 75, it was difficult to tell his age, who had been blind for about 40 years. And he had had, through the Saver Foundation, cataract surgery and was able to see again. And they told me, the, the nurse told me, she said, you know, this man, you know what he did when his sight was restored? You get one of those Helen Keller, you know. The sight is restored. What a, what a magical moment. 40 years of being blind. You know what he did? You know what he said? He said, Give me a stick. I want to beat the people who have been keeping this a secret. God Himself came into the human being and gave the power to restore sight to the blind, and I had to wait 40 years for it. There are 16 million people in India alone who are blinded with cataracts. Should we get a stick to ourselves and say, what is going on? We could give sight to 16 million people, but instead we are distracted in distraction by distraction. That is the imperative. That is the reality. That is saying, we have our spiritual work, we have this consciousness that we can arrive at, and we know we have our work to do. The work is obvious in terms of what we can achieve, and we can achieve it. We begin in that place of the holy fire of imagination, and see the possibility is more than a daydream. It is a substance of the future that is calling us like a lover himself or herself. It is that real and that deep a substance. And we say, let me come to you. Let me create that future with you. Let me be in that place with you. That's going through the sacred fire of change to create the worlds of the future. Thank you. James o D., ladies and gentlemen. James O'D. James o D.